Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. Boom, I'm in the room. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Everyday Conversations Regarding Mental Health. Now, you're here because there's nothing on the telly. And I'm here because I'm here. And uh, I'm coming to you live from the old Hill Manor. And I'm Lord Hill, your host. Now, this evening, what we're going to talk about is I've got a guest on. Keep his fingers crossed that the mic's working. <laughs> going to look at trauma um, and how trauma can affect somebody uh, and how they can deal with it. So without too much further ado, let's bring in my guest. So <laughs> Tina, good evening. Good evening. I hope you can hear me. Can you Boom, hear me? Yes. <laughs> Yay! I'm so that's glad. A, that's I a am, result. <laughs> I am uh, coming to you from uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, which is uh, close to Philadelphia, uh, and um, so I'm just delighted to be on this show. Fantastic! You're most welcome. Now, you're going to tell us all about uh, about the trauma that you've been through, and um, right. And look at how how you dealt with it. So, right. um, if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into it, and uh, and then we'll I'll come back in and um, I'll grill you. <laughs> I'll push you for more information. <laughs> I'm happy to be grilled. Happy. The floor Great. is yours. Well, thank you so. Much. I am a composer uh, out of a classical music tradition. I have been writing music uh, for almost 50 years now. And a year ago, I published a book called Let Your Heart Be Broken, Life and Music of a Classical Composer. And in it, I discuss my birth story, which uh, was had a secret in it that um, I wouldn't say changed my life, but really grabbed my attention uh, so I, I want to start, however, by reading a little bit about um, why I wrote this book um, and the idea of let your heart be broken, what that means, is especially for mental health. Um, what does that mean when I say let your heart be broken? I was at uh, a conference with an author named Stephen Levine, and he did a lot of work with death and people who were dying. And uh, he was a poet and a writer and wrote many, many books. And he was giving this conference and somebody asked him, what is the meaning of life? And I think this has something to do with our subject to do. And he said, oh, I'm asked that all the time, he replies, but I really don't know. He pauses, looking to the side and turns back, smiling. But I think the meaning of life is to let your heart be broken. And then I write, the heart, the round sphere of your being, let your heart be broken. Allow, expect, look forward to, 
the life you have so carefully protected and cared for, broken, cracked, rent in two, heartbreakingly, your heart breaks, and in the two halves rocking on the table is revealed rich earth, moist, dark soil, ready for a new life to begin. So for me, that is definitely um, the life of uh, trauma, that trauma breaks your heart. And for me, my experience is by facing my trauma, by walking through it um, and using it creatively in my music, it, it allowed me to sort of recreate myself in a better version. Wow. So what was your initial trauma? What what was the what was the, the thing that set you onto this? Well, I always knew that I was born in Sweden and had lived in a foster home until I was three and a half years. I lived in the southern part of Sweden in Malmö. And my foster mother was Solveig and my father was Torsten. And I had three brothers, foster brothers, the youngest of whom I actually didn't realize this until much later, was almost my age. And we were brought up as twins for those three and a half years that I lived with them. And then one day, um, a beautiful and American professor, uh, she had just gotten her Ph.D., from University of Pennsylvania. She came and lived in Malmo for maybe a, a month or so and adopted me, brought me back to America where she met my stepfather and married. Um, and then I became the oldest of five kids. So uh, she, had four, she had four children. And I always had this sense that even though I was loved and adored and never treated any differently, I had a, a real sense of disconnection. Um, I know, I remember, for instance, they were talking about family stories, how my great-great-great-grandfather fought in the revolution, American Revolution. And I thought, oh, I wish that were my grandfather. Now, these were just private thoughts that I had. Mm. And I knew that talking to my mother about my adoption was made her very unhappy. So I brought it up once and she had such a look of horror on her face that I thought, oh yeah, you know how kids are very instinctive. They're just like, okay, that's sudden. I shouldn't talk about that. So, um, and I was uh, somewhat depressed as a child. Uh, I think when I looked back at it later in life, I realized I was quite profoundly depressed at certain times. And I would dissociate something up I didn't know I was doing and dissociate really. Um, I just wasn't present. If something was upsetting to me, I just couldn't hold on to myself. I would, I don't know. I'd sort of step back. Like I was watching my life from like it was a TV screen. So, you know, rather than being in it. So, but when I was 21, I happened to be back in Sweden taking care of a family friend of ours, a, a, a daughter of theirs. And I thought, I was there for two months, and I thought right at the end, like the last week, I said, maybe maybe I'll go to the adoption agency. And so I called them up, and they said, 
oh, we wouldn't have any records from you because you're American citizen and we didn't handle Americans. And we you couldn't be Swedish because we wouldn't allow Swedish children, even back in the 50s, to be adopted by uh, foreigners. So I called the day before I left and I said, did you look in the archives? Did you get any information? And they said, come down. We have we have information for you. And so I came down and she was sitting there reading a letter and she said, this is a letter from your birth mother. And she asked me a lot of questions about my life in America. And finally, she said, your birth mother is your you were adopted by your birth mother. Your your adopted mother is your birth mother. So that got me being really quiet for a while. <laughs> I, was, I never would have guessed. Um, and so I traveled back and a week later was with my mother and told her about this. And she said, oh, I meant to tell you, but... And I was 21 at that point. I meant mm. to tell you, but I couldn't find the right time. And, um, you know, she did explain that, you know, in the 50s, having an illegitimate child was very, very difficult. And it meant that um, you might not be able to get a job or you might be discriminated against or or who knows. You would be the fallen woman. Mm. Um, was, was, your, was your mother Swedish then? No. She was American, how, how, but... How come you were born in Sweden? Well, I think my biological father had contacts in Sweden. Um, and Sweden was considered a, a pretty progressive country, you know, where mm. you uh, maybe would be more accepted. Um, and um, it turned out she had never told anyone. She hadn't told my stepfather. <laughs> she hadn't told her mother. Um, and I think over the years, this very smart plan to disguise the birth of her child um, turned into a secret that had really severe consequences in our family. And that she started making choices around this secret. Rather, I think that's one of the problems with secrets is that sometimes you have to make choices around them rather than to be sort of free. And she became, over the years, more and more paranoid that people would find out. Didn't And she didn't want people to know. She didn't want me to tell anybody that she was my, my birth mother. So it was a very strange situation. Um, but I went on with my music career. I was a composer. And uh, when I was 30, I had a brand new daughter and I was holding her and I realized I was really angry and that I hadn't really dealt with this um, and that I really needed to. Otherwise, I was going to sort of let it be part of my daughter's inheritance. It would come out in my behavior. You know, I was angry. I was um, still depressed. Uh, uh, you know, I had severe depressions. And I realized I really needed to get myself um, into some sort of treatment, mental health treatment, or I would just sort of 
be, you know, it's Christmas time, you know, wrapping up a package and putting on a bow on it and giving it to my daughter. And that really inspired me to start a very long process of uh, talk therapy that really helped me get to the bottom of my grieving uh, at the, of the trauma. Because I want to say something else, and we talked about this before. I was a little Swedish girl in a Swedish family. You know, they were my parents. They were my, uh, those were my brothers. And when I left, particularly without any explanation, mm. it was as if, um, oh, there was a terrible car accident or their house burned down. You know, it was as if they disappeared. And one of the things that I found was that I had been grieving that loss since I was three, uh, but I didn't have words for it. Mm. Did you ever meet back up with your first foster parents then? Yes. Um, so um, I, when I started realizing how important they were, I immediately uh, asked my mother for information. And she said, oh, I don't have any. And then I actually called the international operator. And they found uh, one of the siblings who had been born, My, I guess Solveig had been so overwhelmed with loss of me that she wanted to have another child immediately. So Solveig was born uh, almost a year after I left. And um, when I called up, I said, oh, hi, I'm Tina from the US and I used to live with you. And he said, oh, I have always heard about you. So, um, and it turned out this was almost 30 years after I had left that she had died uh, two or three months before I called. So I had just mm. missed missed her. Yeah. Oh, that's a great shame. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the family carried on talking about you after you Yes, left. yes, yes. And I went back and I visited for a week. And then when my daughter was... 10. So uh, I went and lived for about four, uh, a month in Sweden and saw my foster brother daily um, and saw mm. the family, you know, just wanted to reconnect with, with them. Yeah. Yeah. What, what about your, your um, birth father, your real father? Did, did, did you ever <sighs> had any contact at all? Did you find him? Well, in my mother's... <laughs> In my mother's very weird, kind of secretive, odd way, um, when I was in high school, um, so I was 15, she said, oh, I think you should go to boarding school. And I said, oh, great. I want to study music because I was a pianist at that point. And she said, no, 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 no. I want you to go to Philadelphia. I want you to go to this academic boarding school. And there will be this family who will look in, in on you. I said, okay. And then two years later, she said, um, actually, they would like you to live with them for the year. It will save a lot of money and you'll have a family. And uh, while you finish the school, why don't you go live with them? They're old family friends. Um, so I did live with them for a year. And I would call up my mother and I'd say, mom, you know, uh, Dr. Chance and his wife are fighting a lot. 
I, I don't quite understand it. Well, it turned out he was my father, my birth father. And yeah. I was living in the family for a year without knowing it. Um, and it caused a lot of tension, of course, mm. in the marriage. Even though she had accepted it, she knew right from the beginning who yeah. I was. Uh, but I think the tension of me living there and not knowing again that uh, it, it's a very strange story. Your mother would have sort of tipped you the wink, if nothing else, or or your father. He obviously knew who you were. I obviously knew, and I write about it in the book. I write about, um, you know, he said to me later he always wanted to tell me, but my mother had made him promise. Um, mm. So, um, so was he Swedish then? No. He was a, a very well-known uh, scientist who had did, did a lot of work in Sweden um, as a scientist and had a lot of contacts in Sweden. Mm. Um, so it was really through him that my, that was the reason my mother decided to go there. And leave you there. <laughs> yeah, and leave me there, yeah. So I was also, you know, in, my, in the middle of my composing career, um, and I found that I would compose a lot of works. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of composer that really writes about herself, not in an egotistical way, not, but as here I am living in this world. You know, I'm a mother. Um, I'm a, an artist. I'm living in Philadelphia. All these things are going on. What is my perspective? What is my authentic voice that I have at this moment? And so a lot of the work that I was doing in therapy started sort of leaking into my music. So I have a piece called Dark Child Sings, which is a cello quartet. And that is really about that sad, dark child in me that was grieving for a lost Swedish mother. Mm. Um, I have, oh, I have a big orchestra piece called In the Darkness I Find a Face. It is mine. So I was writing all this music and it wasn't as if I was trying to write a story in my music, but it was as if I was holding that idea of, let's say, the dark child as I was composing that and just thinking about it, being with that as I was writing my music. So I, I would say it was about 10 years that um, I was writing music about my, my, uh, you know, my past. Hmm. So have you managed to sort of um, had the conversation now with your mother uh, and your, your father about how they felt at the time, why they did it at the time? Because I think that's that's one thing I, I I've seen over the years that that people that are adopted. One of the biggest questions they ask is, "Why did you leave me? Have you had that conversation?" I have. Um, I want to say that sometimes the reasons they make you understand what's going on, but. 
I do think that the reasons why it happened and the effect on you, um, I wouldn't want to not process my anger and my uh, my sorrow and grief because I was feeling like I had to take care of my mom. Oh, poor mom. How, how could she have gone through this? So I really hold her story in one hand and my my reaction in the other. So I don't confuse them. So I treat them as separate. I think particularly women tend to give up their pain so they can tend to the person who hurt them. You know, they feel Mm. badly for them. They understand they want to forgive. And then they kind of shortchange themselves. So my process was to keep those, those things separate. Um, So I could have compassion with my mother, but I could also say this really profoundly injured me as a child, Mm. Um, regardless of the right of the reasons, you know, honestly, in the beginning, she was making the best choice that she could. However, and in the 50s and 60s, parents didn't talk to their children. They didn't ask them, oh, so how are you feeling? Oh, let's talk about your adoption. (laughs) You know, they didn't. There wasn't language. And that's not their fault necessarily. Mm. However, the effect is still scarring. So you can't get away just because nobody talked about it then doesn't mean that the child isn't traumatized. So they're two separate things. And I think the way my mother um, processed this deception. I don't think it was a deception in the beginning, but I think eventually it became a deception. Hmm. And her inability to really come to understand that she might have hurt someone, um, I think it changed her. I think she became, uh, I don't like the word narcissist, because I think words like, uh, descriptors like that sometimes can Mm. Uh, sway you in the it, it, it relieves one of the complexity of the situation but she didn't want anybody to think badly for her and she was going to defend her turf mm. and um, that became more and more of an issue where she didn't want me to tell my brothers and sisters when I got married um, I wanted to invite both uh, my mother and my father's family, and she wanted me to have two separate weddings, sort of things like that. So she became she and and the truth is, I think, what a great lesson to think about that when we have something in our lives that we are not honestly dealing with, uh, sometimes that can almost become like a Frankenstein that mm. then controls us. And, it becomes um, becomes that secretive monster that that that, that I think so. You'd you think, uh, and, and quite more often than not, wrongly, that because the truth actually comes out, mm-hmm. the the, yes. the that secret you've been keeping hasn't been that bad when the truth right. is known. <laughs> right, but it's right. it's it's that perception in people's minds that. That their little, their dirty little secret um, right. will damage them, 
and 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 they they think that people will think really really badly of them right. when the truth comes out. When ninety nine times out of ten, people don't really care. <laughs> exactly. Now I always believe in privacy. Everyone has the right to privacy. Yeah. You know, I really believe that. On the other hand, a secret about someone in your life. Now, sometimes it it's not helpful to tell. I, it depends upon the secret. You know, um, yeah. I think in a, a you know uh, a married couple, maybe there was an indiscretion that happened a long time ago. I you know I'm I'm not someone who can say honesty is always the best thing. However. This uh, this affected my entire family, my brothers and my sisters mm. and my my stepfather very deeply. Um, and it was uh, took me a long time uh, to stop being so angry. And um, I, I did a lot of forgiveness practice, which I want to say people have a lot of different ideas about forgiveness. Some people don't like it. Sometimes now the word is radical acceptance. Mm. I, I, I don't really know. I, my experience is that my anger was a huge burden that I was carrying around every day for myself. And I wanted to get out from under that weight. Mm. So I decided, um, uh, that I, when I was walking my dog, and I write about this in my book, um, that I would say, uh, I forgive you to all the people that I was angry at. Um, and the best part is I didn't have to mean it. And I think that was really important because I don't think I was in a place where I could really mean it. Hmm. But I, I was just going to say it. I forgive you. I hate you, but I forgive you. Okay, I forgive you. I'm really angry. I forgive you. So, every, and I had a big dog who was very muscular and would kind of drag me through Philadelphia. And it was hot. And, you know, Philadelphia is a big city and there's a lot of garbage. And so I'd be walking after this dog, uh, holding onto the leash. And I would start with myself. I forgive myself. And I'd forgive my little daughter. And then I'd forgive my husband. And I'd forgive my friends. And then I'd forgive my colleagues and my family. And then finally, like 10 or 15 minutes later, I was forgiven my mother and also my stepfather for the way that he handled things. Mm. And I was just spitting nails. I was so angry. And then I'd go home and the next morning I'd do it again. Um, and I think I must have terrorized that neighborhood. They must have said, oh, my gosh, here she comes. That she crazy comes. woman Mrs. who's Angel. yelling. <laughs> yes. And what I noticed after months of doing this is that I could be with my mother and stepfather. Uh, I, my stepfather was particularly dense sometimes and he would start talking and I didn't have to leave the room. I could stay and listen. And then months later, it was Christmas and they gave me a present and I was able to say thank you. Mm. And I think that forgiveness for me, I write in my book, it, it brought me to kindness. I could be kind to them. It didn't restore the relationship or, you know, like a fairy godmother, you know, yeah. <laughs> make everything better. So, so how did it affect, 
How did it affect your, I guess, half-brothers? My brother, half-brothers and sisters? I yeah. think um, the, the seeds to my mother's sort of inability to live by the truth also was part of their relationship too. So it wasn't as if she just did it to me in this sort of encapsulated way. But um, she... I can't quite express it, but they felt it was very resonant for them in their mm. relationship with her too. So, um, and that they, they hadn't known either. You know, I think that was yeah. um, hard on them. So when did it finally come out that, that, that your, uh, your mother was your mother in the family? Um, when, 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 when did the family find out that, that, that she'd been, Carrying this, this secret for years, you know, um, not until not the entire family, so the relatives, not until I published the book. So, um, she died last year. She was uh, ninety nine, and she really hadn't ever publicly uh, claimed me. Uh, Certainly a lot of the relatives, you know, the the cousins and aunts and uncles didn't know. Mm. Uh, so, um, and I didn't feel like I could tell them, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of relationships with them either. But mm. really, it was when I wrote this book that I said, this is who I am. Uh, I name myself. Uh, and I think... The idea of being named for a child is really important. You are my daughter. Yeah. Uh, uh, and she could have easily taken me aside at some point and said, hey, I've got something to tell you. You know, we can't really talk about this publicly because I worry about how it would affect my job. But you are my daughter. Mm. And she so. never did. <laughs> she, you know, she, you know, she certainly when I was 21 and I told her, hey, I know, she said, of yeah. course, you're my daughter. But she also thought, she imagined that I always knew she was my biological mother. She said, oh, well, you always knew. And I said, no, I didn't. She said, oh, yes, you did. <laughs> so <laughs> kind of revisionist history. Um, and I want to say on her behalf, she was an amazing teacher. She was a wonderful person in so many ways. And I think we have to be careful when we talk about people who have hurt us because it's only one part of them. It's not yeah. the whole picture. People are very complicated. Um, and uh, she certainly was an amazing teacher. She was a, a wonderful mother in terms of Traveling, we lived in many countries together. We lived in Turkey for three years. We lived in Germany for a year. We lived in Israel and Santiago, Chile. She loved the arts. Um, oh, she was always taking us to England to see the, the Royal Shakespeare Company. <laughs> you know, when we were living in Germany, that was like the treat, the Christmas treat. Um, so she, it, there are so many good things about her. Um, mm. And again, I try to hold those in one hand and hold the difficult parts in another so I don't mix them up. Yeah. 
So did that enable you to be sort of bilingual or multilingual, living in all these different countries? Uh, Or were you sort in the American bubble? um, Actually, my parents, my mother and stepfather were visiting professors, so we never were in the the bubble. Um, So they taught at the University of Würzburg or the University of Tel Aviv, so we lived in the neighborhoods. I did learn fluent German. So my first language was Swedish, and I quickly replaced that with English. And then I learned fluent German, which I've forgotten by now. Um, and I actually learned Hebrew. I was pretty fluent in Hebrew when I was living there. Um, so, uh, and I had gone in Germany. I actually went to a German high school, a music high school, uh, which I loved. I had a great year in Germany. So whereabouts in Germany? In Würzburg. Oh, Würzburg. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Volkswagen town, yes. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah, it's where they built, built a, uh, Volkswagens in Volkswagen. I didn't know that. I didn't know hmm. that. They have a great musical high school there, um, musicology gymnasium that I went to, and Yeah. So bring us right up to date then. Where are you? Where are you today? What? What? What's? I mean, you've written your book. So I've written where my can book. People, where can people find the book? More right. Well, you can find it on Amazon. Um, that's the best place to get it, and you can buy it in a hardback or a softbound or um, the uh, the Is kind that come in a Kindle. <laughs> It is not audible. I should make an audible version with my music. It talks a lot about my musical process and how I how I uh, relate to music, why I compose, what's important to me. Uh, you can also stream my music. I have been commissioned and performed and have quite a few recordings out. Uh, Deutsche Grammophon, uh, uh, Albany Records. I have a, a brand new digital release called Hymn of the Universe that just came out and a CD that will come, be coming out in the spring. Um, and you can always uh, contact me on my website, which is easy to remember, tinadavidson.com. And so it's really easy to contact me. Well, you find all that down in the description. So I'll put all those links to the, to the book and the music down in the description. If you'd like to go and, and find those, you'll be most welcome, I'm sure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Well, Tina, thank you so much for, for sharing that. I mean, that's been fascinating, absolutely yeah. fascinating, of a, of a story of of secrecy and <laughs> deceit throughout our whole life. Well, and, and, and I, yes, and I want to say um, I was uh, seriously depressed at many times in my life until I was in my 30s. And that was a time where there wasn't any, really any drugs. Um, mm. And I want to say that I have been completely free of depression in the last um, 30 years. Uh, it is worth doing that work of meeting your grief, your your trauma, your pain, your suffering. And uh, however you do it, you know, if you're doing therapy or good friends are helping you or your 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 church pastor or you're doing a lot of meditation or 
dancing or walking or art therapy. I think there are many ways to heal yourself and it's, it's so worth it. It really mm. is. Um, yeah, I have absolutely. so much more time in the day these days. You know, I really uh, have a, an amazing life and uh, feel very grateful to that willingness to walk with my pain rather than bury it. Yes. I think, it, I think it's always good to get it out. Uh, and once it's out, mm-hmm. then, then it's a lot easier to deal with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank you so much, Tina. Oh, my total pleasure. Wow. That is another amazing story. So if you've gone through anything like that in your life, then then there is a way through it. There is a way out of it. There is a way to overcome it. So you can find all Tina's uh, stuff down in the description. And until next time, thank you so much. And uh, TTFN, ta-ta for now. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.